0: The first trial of the former officers charged in the killing of George Floyd is underway. Police officers are rarely prosecuted in such cases, and the world will be watching. The Minnesota Public Radio Newsroom, which has followed this case in detail from the beginning, will bring listeners updates on this monumental trial and the consequences it holds for the city and the country. Listen to In Front of Our Eyes wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: This is 74 Seconds. I'm Tracy Mumford. Last week, the host of one of our call-in shows here at NPR, Tom Weber, got an email. And it was from a man who sat on the jury in the trial of Officer Geronimo Yanez. He wanted to share his perspective from inside that jury room. But he didn't want to be named for fear of backlash or retribution. So we're going to hear from him quickly at the top of this episode, and then we're going to dig into the investigative files, the ones released by the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension last week. We'll talk about what they tell us about the night of the shooting and what happened next. First, though, the juror. So far, only two of the 12 jurors have talked publicly, Dennis Plussard and Bonita Schultz. You heard from Dennis Ploussard in an earlier episode of this podcast. This third juror, he offered more insights into how the decision was made for the not guilty verdict. And he also talked about how the verdict was sitting with him one week later.
2: You know, it was not something that we took lightly. It was not something that was easy by any means. And I can't speak for all the jurors for most things, but I can in saying that What happened to Philando is not okay with any of us. You know, nobody felt good about any part of this. And we were just asked to do a job, and we did it. And and I think every one of us is proud of how we acted, but nobody felt good. Nobody was okay with it.
1: The juror also acknowledged that there had been a huge reaction to this verdict— And he emphasized the role that the law, the words of the law, played in the jury's decision.
2: If you want to make a change, you can't go after a jury or a police officer. I think you need to go after the law. I don't know what that means. I've been thinking about it this week. I don't know how you go about doing that. Do you run for city council? I feel like... Obama said it best when he was leaving office. I mean, just get involved. I don't know if that means contacting your your representative or your your congressman or Picking up a book and going to law school. I don't know how you do it, but I think People should figure out a way to make a difference. They should get involved and it's the law It's the law that people need to go after
1: for the full interview with this juror who has requested to remain anonymous, you can go to Twitter. Just find us at 74 NPR, or go online at 74seconds.org to listen to the whole thing, including what the jury thought after they watched the dashcam footage. But now let's move on to the BCA files that were released last week. Again, it was more than eighty gigabytes. It was a two thousand page report. There were hours of video, and we have our reporters, John Collins and Reham Fashir, here with me now to go through what was in them. Reham, let's start with you. What stood
3: out in these files? There's a lot of really difficult stuff in these files. There's this video of Diamond Reynolds sitting in the back seat of a squad car with her four-year-old daughter after the shooting. You heard a snippet of this back in episode three when she was recording her Facebook Live, but um, with the camera going in the back of the squad car, it's uh, the full thing is really emotional and hard to listen to.
1: Right. We, we do have a snippet of that in episode three. Um, Diamond Reynolds, she's handcuffed. She's in the back seat with her daughter. The Facebook Live video cuts out, but the squad camera, so it goes beyond that. This was new for us to see.
3: It does keep going. It goes on for quite a while, actually. And you see her little four-year-old with her. Reynolds is yelling and swearing, and her daughter begs her to stop. She doesn't want her to, as she put it, get shooted if she continued yelling. Um, This video goes on for an hour, and what we keep seeing through all of it is this deep, raw response to the trauma that just happened minutes before. We talked about this video a lot once we saw it and decided it didn't seem productive to play the whole thing. It's just trauma on display. But there's this one moment in the video where what just happened in the white Oldsmobile seems to crystallize and it, it brought into focus all these incredibly grown up things that this young, young girl was saying to her mom. I wish this
1: town was safer the other towns we would live in. That's true. I don't want it to be like
3: What's this on? anymore. Tell that to the <laughs> police, okay? When they come, okay? <laughs> This is important to understand what's happening here. This conversation isn't a conversation you expect a four-year-old to have, to be addressing these issues of safety. She's struggling with this idea that you have to be polite and well-behaved to not get shot. It's coming from this four-year-old. And for the first time in these files, we start to see glimpses of the effects of the shooting on that little girl Remember that she was buckled into her car seat in the back of the car when Filato Castile was shot. She witnessed a traumatic death of the man who her mother said was like a father to her from just a few feet away.
1: Well, and even at the police station, uh, which is where Diamond and her daughter are taken, the officers are worried about the effect that this is going to have on this small girl. Um, when Diamond Reynolds is being interviewed by an investigator, this is before that she even knows that Philando Castile has died. The investigator asks her if she wants the little girl to see a counselor.
2: And she seems really bright, actually. Yes, she is. In the brief conversation I had with her. But I'm, I'm, I wanted to figure out what she saw, number one.
0: But more importantly, if there is trauma to her, just the human component of this is what is an acceptable plan to make sure she's not more adversely affected Going forward, what is the best plan going
2: there's forward? There's no best friend, There's no best plan. An officer wrongfully shot and hopefully not killed my boyfriend without proper protocol. Okay, but I'm. Worried. There's no
1: way my daughter's going to be able to move forward from this. Phil is like her father. Okay, he does everything for her. He picks her up from school. He drops her off at school. He reads her books before bedtime. He wakes up in the morning. There will be no coming from this. He's more in her life than her own father. There is no coming back from this. She could talk to all the therapists she needs, but this is not. There's no coming back from this. That's just one of these really powerful emotional moments in these files. Um, but Reham, it sort of seems when you go through all of this that Diamond Reynolds was treated like a suspect the night of the shooting.
3: It does. Uh, She was handcuffed right when she got out of the car. They took her stuff, including her purse, her phone, her keys. They separated her from her daughter. They wouldn't let her call other people. And they insisted on doing this interview that night. They told her that she was the only witness, so they needed to interview her right away. And over and over, you see how differently she's treated than what happens with Officer Geronimo Yanez that night. In these files, they do refer to her as a suspect.
1: So we'll have John kind of walk us through that comparison more of, you know, what happens to Diamond Reynolds, what happens to Officer Yanez. But what else did these files tell us about how they treated and how they investigated Diamond Reynolds?
3: Again, these files have difficult moments in them. There is this one moment when Diamond Reynolds finds out that Philando Castile has died. It's an investigator who tells her during the interview, he gets a text and tells her that he has bad news. And this is two hours after Castile was declared dead. So she doesn't know until that moment.
1: And that's just, again, one of these really difficult moments that is in these files is watching her learn what's happened to Philando Castile. It's on tape. Um, there are a lot of hard truths about that night in these files, but this was just the start of the investigation. So so what do we see in all of these pages and all these videos about how the the whole investigation is conducted as it moves forward?
3: There is more information about how the investigation was conducted in the beginning and also throughout the whole process before the trial. Um, We don't know exactly what investigators were looking for, but they issued a search warrant for Diamond Reynolds and Philando Castile's social media accounts. They asked Facebook to keep that request private. They didn't want anyone, especially Diamond Reynolds, to know about the existence of the search warrant. But Facebook turned them down. The company called the request uh, for secrecy unconstitutional. And the investigators then backed off after that. Um, Also, remember, investigators had Diamond Reynolds' phone, and Reynolds' attorney, Larry Rogers, accused the BCA of being on a fishing expedition. And part of why they were requesting all this, including several days of phone logs, texts, and voicemails on Castile and Reynolds was because they were trying to prove any connection between Castile and Reynolds and that armed robbery of the Super USA that put this all in motion. We know definitively that there was no connection, and the documents confirm that. But that was Yana's story, and they followed up on that story.
1: OK, yeah, let's let's talk more about Yanez, um, because how he was handled, like Reham mentioned, is very different um, than what happens with Diamond Reynolds. And and that standard, Yanez is an officer. He has the benefit of the doubt. But, John, what can you tell us about what happened to Yanez after the shooting?
4: Yanez had a huge support system almost right away. It was just minutes after the shooting, while Diamond Reynolds and her daughter were still in the back of the squad car, that two officers start to reassure Yanez that he did the right thing. They say, great job. They say, good work.
1: Well, and this is when the department's officer-involved shooting protocol starts to kick in. So Yanez gets what, uh, what they call a shadow. He gets another officer who sticks with him, who takes him to the station, walks him through what happens next. And, and we don't know what they said as they drove back to St. Anthony because the audio was not activated in that car.
4: That's right, and at the station, investigators tested Yanez for drug and alcohol use that night, which is standard. This didn't come up in trial, but it was in these files, and he was negative for both of those. They also took a picture of him, and I was struck looking at this photo, which was taken that night. It shows Yanez in his police uniform. He has a black bracelet on his wrist. And if you really zoom in, you can see the bracelet says, Police Lives Matter, in bold white letters. In this photo, you can also see Philando Castile's insurance card, crumpled and bloodied in Yanez's front pocket.
1: Okay, so after they photograph him and he's at the station and he connects with his lawyer and all that, he goes home. Um, He was not formally interviewed the night that it happened. He was brought back in the next afternoon. So this interview isn't on videotape. Diamond Reynolds' uh, interview was. For Yanez, we just have the audio recording. And the most important thing about this is that the jury never heard this. Right. The prosecution tried to introduce it while Yanez was testifying, but the judge would not allow it. Uh, the prosecutors were able to read some portions of it out loud, but that was it. The jury even requested a full transcript of it while they were deliberating, but again, the judge denied it. So let's talk about what is in this interview.
0: Okay, the recorder's going. Uh, my name is Doug Hanning. I'm a special agent with the Minnesota of Beer, Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. This is, this is my partner, Special Agent Chris Olson. Um, the date today is 7-7 of 2016. The time right now is
4: So, starting out, Yanez had two attorneys with him at this interview. It was just before 2 o'clock, and that's almost 17 hours after the shooting. One of his lawyers noted that the interview was happening during Yanez's normal sleeping time. He asked for the opportunity to change any statements later, and the investigator said, absolutely. Now, we're not going to play this whole thing for you. A lot of the interview is Yanez describing his day-to-day work, jobs he's had, his gear, but some of the things he said, things that didn't come up explicitly at trial about the day of the shooting, really stand out. I decided to initiate the traffic stop
0: just west of The intersection on larpenter west of fry street because just in case anything happened i wanted to make sure that nobody's lives were at jeopardy and we were out of heavy traffic and innocent bystanders and all that
4: one thing that comes up over and over in this interview is yanez's focus on marijuana Yanez said he smelled it as he walked up to Castile's car. He said he didn't mention this to Castile, so Castile would not go on the defensive. And after Philando Castile said he had a firearm, Yanez said he immediately thought about marijuana again. He's reaching down and I believe I'm telling him something along the lines of don't
0: reach for it, don't do it, referring to the uh, the firearm. Yep. Because usually people that carry firearms carry them on their waistband, um, and or in between the seats. And being that the vehicle smelled, the inside of the vehicle smelled like marijuana. Um, I didn't know if he was keeping it on him for protection, for from a, a drug dealer or anything like that, or any other people trying to rip them. Rip them meaning steal from them. Rob them. Him. Um, rob him. Um, and I couldn't see uh, the area where he was reaching his hand down towards. Okay. And I believe I continued to tell him, don't do it or don't reach for it, and he still continued
4: to move. Yanez insists that he thought Castile was reaching for a gun, although he never explicitly tells investigators he saw a gun throughout the whole interview.
0: Uh, as that was happening, and as he was pulling out his hand, I thought I was going to die, and I thought if he's... If he has the, the guts and the audacity to smoke marijuana in front of the five-year-old girl and risk her lungs and risk her life by giving her secondhand smoke and the front seat passenger doing the same thing, then what what care does he give about me?
4: So because of the marijuana, because he believed he saw a firearm, because he was afraid for his and his partner's lives, Yanes told them he had no other options.
0: And I thought he was reaching for the gun. I thought he had the gun in his hand, in his right hand, and I thought he had it enough to where all he had to do was just pull it out, point it at me, move his trigger finger down the trigger, and let off rounds. And I had no other option than to take out my firearm, and and I shot. Um, I shot him. I don't remember the first couple shots. I. I believe I remember the last two shots, and I believe one of the shots went into his left arm. Um, as I was shooting, uh, I, I kept watching him, and I, I remember smelling the gun smoke and the bright flashes from the muzzle, and then I heard a couple of pops uh, from my
1: firearm. That is intense to hear Officer Geronimo Yanez describing the shooting in his own words. I know you heard it in court, but it was the first time that I had heard him describe what happened that night. Is there anything else in these files that stood out to you as you listened and read?
4: Another thing that we didn't hear about in trial is that Yanez talked more about his experience pulling over people who were carrying guns. We know from the dash cam that there were five seconds between the time Castile said, Sir, I have to tell you, I have a firearm on me, and when Yanez fired the shots. During this BCA interview, Yanez insisted that he was comfortable pulling people over who had guns. It was routine. He says he did it all the time.
0: And I've been comfortable with that, being on a traffic stop with somebody that has a firearm in the vehicle around their person.
4: So.
0: You've had those people, you've directed those people to provide you with a driver's license? Correct. Proof of insurance? Correct. Normal requests during a traffic stop? Yes. Okay. Without issue? Without issue. Okay. it's Just, I hate to be redundant, but you, as you speak to us today, believe that that was a firearm in this person's hand? Yes. Okay. And it was... You described the color, or maybe you didn't, but it was... uh... I just knew it was dark, and I could barely see, and I thought it was a firearm, and I thought he was going to shoot and kill me, and I thought he was going to shoot and kill my partner right after that.
1: So this interview with Geronimo Yanez lasted one hour and one minute. The transcript is about 27 pages, and we've posted it in its entirety on our Twitter account if you want to read it for yourself. Again, jurors, just like the guy we talked to at the start of this episode, never heard it. As we were going through these more than 2,000 pages of evidence and videos and search warrants and police reports, pressure has been building on the city of St. Anthony. Like we mentioned in the last episode, the city reached a nearly $3 million settlement with Valerie Castile, Philando's mother.
0: Can I have people's attention, please? Uh, I assume you're not all here for the audit report. So I will uh, let me just tell you how we conduct business and how this will happen.
1: And this week, uh, 100 protesters packed meeting, the St. We'll Anthony get- City Council meeting. They are calling for the mayor to resign. They're calling for Yana's to be fired without getting a payout.
0: The theory that he could be paid or get some kind of severance after he cost you three million dollars, killed a man, and pissed the whole damn nation off is appalling.
1: The St. Anthony city manager says Yanez's attorneys are still reviewing the separation agreement. As of this moment, Yannis still has a job at the city as a police officer, and he is still getting paid. As we approach the one-year anniversary of Philando Castile's death, we want to hear how this case has affected you and your community. To contribute, you can send us a voice memo. We have full instructions up on Twitter. That's at 74SecondsMPR or online at 74Seconds.org. I want to give a special thanks this episode to Peter Cox, Tom Weber, Julie Seipel, and Cody Nelson. Again, if you have not yet subscribed or reviewed 74 Seconds on whichever podcast platform you've been listening to us, please take a moment and do so. It really does help new listeners find the show. 74 Seconds is a production of NPR News and American Public Media. This is Tracy from 74 Seconds, and we wanted to let you know that our colleagues at APM Reports just launched the new season of their award-winning podcast, In the Dark. In this second season, they explore a new story with life or death consequences. It's the case of four people who were killed in a small town in Mississippi, and the story of why a black man on death row has been tried six times for those murders. You can listen and subscribe to In the Dark on Apple Podcasts.